Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm John McEnroe. I'm Bjorn Borg. This is Martina Navratilova. I'm Mats Wilander. I'm Stan Wawrinka. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Andy Murray. And you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Well, it's episode 601, which means we completely forgot about talking about episode 600 yesterday of The Tennis Podcast. It's only seven and a half years of... Uh, tennis podcast that we were I- intending to celebrate and completely forgot all about. But anyway, that's a sort of tradition here on the tennis podcast. We did exactly the same after number 500. And the good news is we have got loads of tennis to talk about today. We don't need to get into Boston Legal, although I suspect it might come up. Um, but Catherine Whittaker is here f- live joining us from the Amazon Prime Video Studios, the dressing room, whilst tennis is going on halfway through the day. What's the latest, Catherine? The latest is that there's a bloody big inconvenient gap in play. <laughs> you say inconvenient. I mean, to me, this is convenient. This is perfect <laughs> podcast recording time. podcast-shaped gap in play. Yeah, because uh, Djokovic beats Tsitsipas in 58 minutes. I say gap. They've actually they've moved uh, the doubles match that was going to be played on court one, the uh, warehouse court, as you put it. Uh, they've moved it to centre court and uh, all four of the players involved look delighted about that. So some bonus Splendid. doubles on centre. Um, yep. Courtesy of uh, a very confused looking sit to pass and a no-nonsense Novak Djokovic. Yeah, we'll, we'll get straight on to the WTA finals in a second. But actually, just given you talking about Djokovic there, Catherine, I mean, he was sensational today, wasn't he? I mean, this is a guy who is pretty under the weather this week. He's barely got a... You wouldn't recognise his voice if you heard it. It sounds incredibly gravelly. He's obviously had a bit of a cold, and he, he was pretty ropey in his first-round match he got it going against Carl Edmund, but then yesterday, or rather earlier today against Sitsabas, he was flawless pretty much, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, it was Australian Open final-esque. Um, yeah, he sounded like Tom Waits all week, Novak Djokovic. He really has sounded ropey. Uh, and he was decent, I thought, yesterday against Carl Edmund, particularly in the second set, by far his best set of the week. But today was just, you know, we we were bigging that match up so much. Sits a pass, 2-1 head-to-head, won both their previous hardcore meetings. Um, some of the comments from Sits a pass after he beat Djokovic in Shanghai about how he doesn't fear Djokovic, he thinks Djokovic fears him. <laughs> you know, it was all, we gave it the massive hype and we thought it was completely justified. And 58 minutes later, 
we were sat there dissecting an absolute demolition and poor Stefano Sitsipas, we know we know how confused he <laughs> gets <laughs> in these moments. He ha- I don't think he's done his press conference yet, but I'm anticipating something along the lines of what he experienced after he got a hiding from Nadal in Australia, which was just a sort of bereft-looking child. How did that happen, sort of? Look. Yeah, uh, but yeah. I'm really good at tennis. How did <laughs> how did that happen? We, we did actually, I think, pretty much come to the conclusion last night that he would beat Djokovic. So uh, here's us holding our collective hands up. Um, I don't know, but what did you think, Matt? Did you think he would? Uh, did you think he would end up winning um, Djokovic, and particularly in that fashion? I, I, I didn't see any of this match because I was busy commentating. But goodness me. The, the, the time on it and also seeing Catherine's post-match analysis with the, the Amazon Prime Video Studio pundits. I mean, it, was, it wasn't even a contest, really. It was one of those matches where it looked like Sitsipas's shots were in slow motion and because Djokovic was just getting there so early with all the time he needed to just rip winners. And yeah, Sitsipas just looked a little dazed and confused by what was happening to him. So I'm, I'm also eagerly awaiting those... Uh, press conference quotes but I don't know it's been one of those days where I've watched two matches back to back now where the the first set has just been blistering tennis by it was first it was it was Djokovic in uh in Paris and it was it was Pliskova in in Shenzhen it's just sort of not what I was expecting at all from either match right from the start. And it kind of leaves you a bit confused and immediately puts you on the back foot. Mm, yeah, well, let's get straight on to that. I should say that Djokovic now plays Grigor Dimitrov. We'll give a, a little rundown of that in a, a little while's time. But that Pliskova-Halep match is the crux of the tennis podcast today for a number of reasons. I mean, for a start, it was... It finally felt like we could breathe again with normal tennis going on mm. rather than thinking about round-robin tennis and and substandard form and lethargic, lacklustre tennis, which we'd been having most of the week, three players withdrawing out of illness or injury. Suddenly, you'd got everything on the line with this match and Pliskova and Halep came out playing absolutely fantastic tennis Particularly Pliskova, the first set lasted 20 minutes. She hit 11 winners and three unforced errors. It was as though she just decided, I don't care how slow everybody keeps saying this court is, I'm going to pretend it's not slow. And I'm going to absolutely belt everything. Everything was coming out of the middle of the racket. She was sensational. Second set... I felt Halep was equally sensational because she just she put it behind her. She had a brief on-court coaching visit at the end of the first set with Darren Cahill, who was quite quick to say, look, you just got a, a full reboot now. You've got to go full reboot, which she did. She started running everything down. She turned the tables. I didn't even think Pliskova was playing badly in the second set. The point Cahill was making at that stage was – you're putting everything in the pocket for her. You're putting everything at hip height for Pliskova. She's loving it. Stop playing so flat. Stop playing loopy uh, topspin shots and getting the ball up harder, which she did. And she was brilliant. So we're in this perfect position of one set all. It was the match of the week. Gets to 3-2 in the third set. And again, incredibly competitive five games. Long fifth game. Then Darren Cahill came onto the court and delivered an on-court coaching visit, the likes of which I don't think I've seen from anybody, let alone from him. I've certainly never been as shocked by an on-court coaching visit as I was from this one because he said to her, he came onto the court and he said, Simona, look at me. 
She didn't look at him. And he said, the last three games, you've been a disgrace on the court. He went on to say, come on, you've got to reel it in. Get your focus back between the lines. For no reason, you've lost it here. You have a chance to define yourself now in this set. Forget the result. How are you going to finish this match? It's up to you. She then went out and lost eight of the next nine points and went from being on serve at 2-3 to being 2-5 down. She then got, got herself together, played, I think, eight or nine really good points and got herself to 4-5 to down, but eventually lost it. And it's a very strange feeling to to immediately go from talking about a fantastic match and, and a week and, in fact, a career's worth of hailing Darren Cahill, the on-court coaching master, to suddenly feeling... I, I can only speak for myself, quite uncomfortable with with what he actually said to her and the way he said it. Uh, I, I know you haven't had a chance to see this, Catherine, but Matt, you did. What uh, was, I have now, actually. You have. Okay. What, yeah. what, what were your reactions? Uh, well, I'd been prepared for it because I, I hadn't been watching it live. I came off air, found all of your. I, I couldn't. I couldn't quite believe what I was reading, actually, uh, with your uh, your two messages back and forth about it. Read the transcript. Uh, and then really struggled to find a clip of it online, which tells you a story in itself, doesn't it? If people were um, reluctant to to clip it up and put it out there, I think that tells you perhaps the, the discomfort in the general reaction to it. Because usually something like that, a dynamic on-court coaching exchange, particularly with those two, you'd find it clipped up and online in an instant. Um, I'm interested to know what, what Halep says about it. I suspect that Halep is probably okay with it, not okay with uh, losing the match. But um, I think, and therefore if Halep's okay with it, should should we all be okay with it? I think the answer is is no, because I think the, the public nature of those exchanges um, does give the people involved a slightly wider responsibility Um and I, I did feel uncomfortable watching it because, because of the the power dynamic that it that it laid bare. It looked like, and it looked like a grown up telling off a child, and that isn't how I want a player coach relationship to feel. And it never is how Halep and Cahill feel. I mean, he, he sometimes gives her a hard time, but it's always in it's always conversational it's always a dialogue it's always inviting her to give her views of uh, of how she feels she's doing and what she's doing right and wrong and this felt this felt like a a belittling and a telling off um and it was it was uncomfortable to watch to give regardless her- of how Halep herself uh feels about it she well may well not have been uncomfortable yeah um but i think there's more to it than and how she felt about it. Just to say, uh, just to give a little bit of further context, we we then had uh, on BT Sport where I was commentating. I mean, my immediate reaction was, "What are you doing? Don't talk to her like that." Was my immediate feeling on it. I didn't say that at the time. I listened to it, but that's how I felt. Uh, Joe Jury, who was alongside me, was was shocked and said that she thought it was too much she also went on to say that when she was coached by alan jones he would give her a real telling off at times if she if he didn't think she was doing the right things but he, it would always be in private now of course 
this is different. It's on-court coaching. And there wasn't on-court coaching back when, when Joe was playing. And I know Joe actually doesn't believe in on-court coaching, incidentally. And I also should say that there's a danger of some people like me wanting to have our cake and eat it because I'm always talking about how I like aggro. I'm always talking about how I like on-court coaching because we get to see and hear these conversations publicly that uh, that are entertaining. Um, I was walking out and probably enjoying the drama of it all on one level, and yet at the same time, here I am saying I, I didn't enjoy it and felt a bit uncomfortable with it. So uh, I, I'm well aware of my own hypocrisy or, or how it could be viewed as hypocrisy there. Nigel Sears and Annabelle Croft were both in the stadium at the time, and they made the point that the body language of Halep in those three games that preceded this visit were clearly riling Cahill. You could see that this was a build-up and that she was, I think, ignoring him, gesticulating towards him in a way that was just, yeah, he'd had enough. Um, and there is also, there are also times, I think, when we watch Andy Murray behave like that, where I think the first thing I want somebody to do is go and say, you know, call him out on it or give him a telling off himself or ha- or take him to task on it. And we don't get to see that. Matt, what was your immediate reaction? Well, my immediate reaction was I cannot think of another example where a player has been told to their face and yet also publicly by a member of their own support team that they've been a disgrace on a tennis court. It was, it was a pretty extraordinary thing to witness in the moment. Um, now, Darren Cahill knows Simona Hallett better than I do, better than we do. He knows her pretty well. And obviously, he thought that kind of the tough love was the way to go in that in that moment. And I genuinely do think he had her best interests at heart when he was saying that. But I didn't like it. I, I think the choice of words was one thing. The, the tone was another that you've both talked about, how it was quite aggressive and didn't create the usual feeling that you have with a Darren Cahill coaching session where you feel like, as you said, it's a conversation, it's a dialogue. He so often starts his coaching timeouts with, okay, what are you thinking? Tell me, talk to me. And I really admire as much as what he says, the way he says it usually. So I feel a bit conflicted. I feel like I've seen him in a different light in this um, on-court coaching session, which we saw. And... It didn't work because Cahill himself talks about his advice lasting for short chunks. Like he talks about very, very directly, very openly about his advice wanting to last two games. Like this is it. Concentrate on these next two games or these next seven minutes, I think he mentioned earlier on in the tournament. Well, the next two games, Hallett was completely out of it as though, you know, she couldn't win. She could barely win a point. And it was almost as though. He'd said all this nuanced stuff as well about getting your energy back, refocusing. But it was as soon as he'd used the word disgrace, it was like Halep couldn't look past that. It was just that was the word she was then fixated on quite naturally. And it reflected in her tennis. And yeah, I I didn't like it at all. And it'll be interesting to see what Halep does say about it. I don't suppose she will speak out against it. But just as a viewer, it... It was really uncomfortable, I thought. Mm. And, and actually, yeah, I, I said at the time in commentary that after those nine points of which she'd won just one, it was, she was bailing out on rallies as if I'm not going to knuckle down. I'm just, I don't care anymore. 
a little bit. There was a there was mm. a, a petulance to the way she was hitting the strokes. Then she did seem to dial herself back in, and but I think she probably was in a bit of shock after but he being spoke spoken to her to like that. she was a child. Mm. So and she <laughs> responded petulantly, like in a slightly childish manner, which I, I think I might have done as well. Mm. It's a fascinating case study, really. Mm. Um, and yes, it will be interesting to see where they go from here. And I, and I am quite well aware of of how it isn't, it isn't just straightforward, this. I know how I felt about it, but I'm also... Would, would we feel differently about it if she'd won the next however many games, four or five games, and, and won the match? That's a very good question. If, I, it, had I, been, if, it, had, if it had worked... I, I, I know I didn't like it at the time and uh, I, I, I don't think that that element would have changed but maybe mm. my reflection on its effectiveness might have done. I mean, the fact that she got herself together eventually and made it competitive at the end is one thing but the fact is they were at 3-2 in the final set. She was 2-3 down in the final set having just played a very, very good game and only just failed to, to win it and then she lost two games in the space of about three minutes. So she's 2-5 down. You, you, so as a, as a shock tactic, clearly that didn't work. The other thing is he also said it's not even about the result. It's about – and, I'm, and I'm, sh- I'm sure he's well within his rights to feel this. It's about your application, your attitude, your behavior on court. It's just that maybe that would have been better off said afterwards. Do you think her attitude – behaviour on court for those three games that he was referencing was disgraceful no I mean I, I wouldn't use those words I wouldn't use that word I, th- I do think she was letting it get to her that even on TV it was clear that she was starting to throw the racket about or you know she was starting to act petulantly already and according to Nigel Sears and Annabelle Croft in the stadium it, it looked worse in person her behaviour than it did on TV I still don't think I've seen worse from her put it that way I thought she was really frustrated not to go up a double break. She had break points at uh, two love, didn't manage to get the double break, then played a poor game to lose serve. And then the two all game was fantastic. They were both playing really yeah. well. Pliskova was having to play like she did in the first set just to win that game, sort of middling the ball, hitting winners. Hallett was coming back at her. And yes, yeah, she was getting frustrated, but I really don't think it was anything more than just frustration at the situation, tension with the match, with everything on the line. I really don't think it was a disgrace, to to use mm. that word. Yeah. Um, it's it's a shame, in a way, to be taking away from what was a really a, a fantastic match. And look, again, this kind of adds to it. It was dramatic. It was interesting. There was a big crowd in today who were really... in engaged there were there were fans on both sides we've got a football team from the Czech Republic chanting Pliskova we've got all of <laughs> Simona Halep's normal uh, amount of fans chanting her name it was it was great atmosphere and Pliskova was just playing so well the, the quality was exceptional throughout the whole match um, but she held it together at the end and she got the win but I, yeah it, it's it's just interesting seeing that the on-court coaching dynamic and one of the most respected coaches in the sport who I don't think I've ever thought has come on and got it wrong before. Mm. I, I never, ever remember thinking that, but I did this time. And it just, yeah, I just, I find it really interesting as a talking point. It felt um, in, it felt, just on the crowd, it felt in the stadium a little bit 
like what I'm anticipating the Madrid Davis Cup finals to feel like with a, a largely neutral crowd and pockets of really vocal support. Mm. You had you had the Romanians and the Czech kind of going up against each other. And it, it did create quite a nice um, vibe in that stadium. And just Pliskova, she must be a difficult player to really support because even when she's playing well, she makes it look quite easy with that demeanour. It's quite casual. And I think that can work against her when she's playing badly. It can almost look like she's not trying, but that's just the way she is. But when she's playing well, she she it's fascinating to watch, but even then she doesn't necessarily give you a load. She doesn't she's not fist no, pumping all the time. But um, today I felt I felt she was her tennis was uplifting. I thought yeah. that's the best tennis I've seen her play all year. That first set, she was awesome. Mm. Um, How did she suddenly manage to do that today? But my sense, I mean, look, it's difficult to know exactly, of course, um, but my sense was that, right, we've got that out the way. We've got the round robin out the way, effectively. This is a, a playoff now to get to the final, to the semifinals. And I think she just went out there and thought, you know, I can only win this by blasting her off the court for a start. So I think she was clear in her own mind of how she had to go about it. And I think the the finish line is kind of in sight. I've only got to, I've got to win three more matches, and I'm going to go for it. She went out. She went for everything, even when it wasn't working in the second set. She didn't back off. She didn't start rallying and playing tentatively. She just went for it. And the sound coming off her racket, Catherine, you mm. would have loved. I know you know you know. Sometimes you hear <laughs> that that sound when somebody's middling the ball i think you matt came up with the with the line on twitter he said she's playing urban dictionary tennis because all of those words like zoning and treeing and uh and lights out tennis were were what came to mind watching the way she was hitting the ball and the sound off the strings oh you know you just you just wanted to wallow in that it was it was a it was a joyful experience to watch her play today like snapping it the sound of snapping a carrot Yes. Yes, it was like it was like normal descriptions weren't enough. So you had to go to these slightly absurd tennis only descriptions like treeing and lights out and um and and it was it was like the anti Federer match at the O2 last year. Do you remember when it felt like he didn't have the strings in his racket? This felt like this felt like Pliskova only had the middle strings in her racket and yeah. everything was coming out of them. It was it was a joy. It was so. That's uh, Simona Halep's season over. Um, we'll, we'll, I, I, I tend to agree with you, Catherine. I, I suspect she will. She will talk, and there won't be any problems at all from her side of things because I, I've seen it in the past. She's a. She's she views things in a different way, and uh, fair enough to her for that. But um, yeah, it'll be an interesting one to follow that well over the next year, anyway. Um, now she will now face. Uh, Pliskova will face Ash Barty in the semis tomorrow. Alina Svitolina played Sofia Kenin, the other alternate today, and eventually got the job done in straight sets, I think once again on her sixth match point. She has played Kenin now five times. Every one of them has been an epic. This Mm. was well over two hours for two sets, and Kenin played really well. She's got the most incredible drop shot, uh, which was just driving Svitolina to distraction. And if you consider Svitolina was already guaranteed to be qualified, guaranteed to win the group, and yet she still fought her heart out. I think that there must have been a 
I certainly suspected that there might be a tendency for for a player in that position to just think, you know what, I don't want to drain myself ahead of what is a massive match tomorrow against Belinda Bencic, but she she won it. It was a really difficult balance that she had to strike, I think. She didn't want to lose momentum by putting in a bit of a shoddy performance, and yet, equally, she didn't want to get herself embroiled in some kind of three-set marathon because she had to she has to play tomorrow against Bengshik. Um But I thought she was really good at lifting her intensity right when she needed to because Kenin served for uh, both sets and slightly helped Svitolina by getting a bit tight, but Svitolina raised her game in those moments as well. Um, and it's starting the big question of this tournament now. It feels like who's got the tools, the patience, the weaponry to hit through Svitolina on this court because she is hitting the ball really well and she's moving so well and looking really tough to tough to stop. But I thought I thought Kenin was a real credit, actually, because, you know, coming in for one match as an alternate, I know there's all sorts of prize money on offer, but, you know, she really dug in and was gutsy and gave a really good account of herself. It was it was David Ferrer esque when he when he saved the ATP finals that time by playing that three set match and okay, it's been it's not been a WTA finals that has been short of bad matches necess- short of good matches necessarily, but it, it felt like it needed a bit of a boost and yeah. Kenin Kenin did help provide that today. No, today today was good in that regard. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello, tennis podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. 
Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Uh, Catherine, I mentioned Grigor Dimitrov earlier on. Uh, so he is through to the semis. How's he done that? He played really, really well. <laughs> First Masters semi since Monte Carlo 2018. Um, and he's now, he's had this weird year where he, I, I believe he started the year 19 in the world, dropped down to 78 before the US Open, and he's now going to end the year around about 19, possibly a bit better if he beats Novak Djokovic tomorrow, which is highly unlikely given their head to head, although I do remember saying similar things. Uh, a couple of months ago, before he played Federer in New York. So um, I suppose stranger things have happened. Although I, I think it might be even stranger if he were to beat Djokovic tomorrow. But um, yeah, what a weird year. Mm. What a weird year. And just, yeah, I know you bought yesterday when I compared Dimitrov to Ostapenko. But this has come out of nowhere. He lost round one in Beijing. He lost round two in Stockholm, round one in Stockholm, round two in Vienna. I mean, he's done absolutely nothing. And now and now this, just like coming into to the US Open. I just, I don't, <laughs> I don't it's great. It's great to see. Yeah, but, uh, you can turn it on. And, I don't uh, get it anymore. He, he doesn't know when he's going to turn it on either. That's the no. interesting thing. Djokovic, I mean, the other thing is, apart from Djokovic suddenly having found his form and despite the, the cold he's had, this world number one end of year ranking is a big deal to him, isn't it? I don't know how much he'll say that, but you know, he's trying for a sixth year end number one, which would take him ahead of Federer, who's got five. I think Nadal, the one who's trying to usurp him, he's got four at the moment. And Pete Sampras is the, the record holder on six. Sampras did six in a row. So he could draw level with him on that record. And I know how much that record meant to Sampras. I remember the year he got it in 1998, sixth year in a row. I was around the circuit then. That was my first year as ATP communications manager. And he was uh, he was quite awesome that year in, in at the ATP finals but he was so stressed out in the run-up to it yeah Greg remembers it vividly yeah well um, he, he was part of the stress because he went and yeah, beat Sampras yeah. in Paris in the final didn't he Greg gladly contributed to Pete Sampras's stress he remembers the goatee that Sampras grew at the time and he said that Sampras was carrying a back injury um and he he said he thinks that that was possibly slightly psychosomatic due to the the stress he was experiencing um, because he, he wanted it so much. And he said it was alarming seeing Sampras like that because he was usually, you know, horizontal. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in the, terms the, of his, yeah. I remember that back injury because I remember taking him off the court as the communications manager to his live interview straight after the match. And when he got into the studio of the interview, while he was waiting to go onto the set, he lay down in front of me and started to do all sorts of elaborate back exercises to try to loosen his back up. Um, and then the next day, his prospective second opponent withdrew injured, so Sampras had a bye. That guaranteed him the year-end number one. And the next day, he shaved off his beard. <laughs> it, was, it was Rios that withdrew, right. wasn't it? Yeah. Um, 
And yeah, Greg recalled that as well. He said he remembered seeing Sampras and just you could see the relief yeah. on his face. Um, I mean, Djokovic it's, it's, a a very, it's a very difficult, different situation for Djokovic because he, Djokovic basically has to win every match now at the, until the end of the year and he knows that. And I actually think that him being the chaser um, is, is, is helping him. You could absolutely see him doing that. that. Having a target, he's chasing a target. Um, I I think he might also need Nadal to lose a match against someone else. I think if, I think if he beats Nadal in both the Paris final and the London final, I still think that would be enough for Nadal to clinch number one. So it's a little bit out of his control, but right. You could feel like the pressure would be on if if Djokovic uh, does win Paris. Then mm. Nadal very rarely goes through London undefeated, getting getting through to the final. But it, I don't know. Just you can you can correct me if I'm wrong, but this feels like the one remaining really major record that Sampras has got left. I, I really yeah. feel quite quite <laughs> sorry for him. Everyone... You've got Con- Connors is holding on to his titles record. Yes. Federer but... is closing down. And Connors thought he would never be overtaken. And Sampras... <laughs> Federer's clearly... just going to play Basel for the next decade. He'll retire from all other tennis and keep playing Basel and Newport. until he's got Connors' record. I, I, <laughs> I think Connors is going to come out of retirement and play... <laughs> Atlanta or something, um, but, but uh, yeah. And Sampras. But of course, Sampras. I mean, I suppose you could say Sampras did it six in a row. Mm. Yeah, which was. But incredible. then is it? Which is which is incredible. But then you could make the argument that it's more incredible to have done it over the longer. Mm. I know he hasn't done it yet, but if he does, and with this number I mean, of he, uh, opponents. Yeah, of the likes of Federer and Nadal. I mean, yes, l- longevity is is part of it. He's got more years in which he was able to do it than Sampras, because Sampras maybe didn't play as long. But but you're right. I mean, to he has the chance, Djokovic here, to be the most dominant player of the era based on world number ones. Which we've got to find incredible. Sampras another record that he can have. <laughs> there must be some sort of aces. Aces record. Well, nobody's like, breaking Goran six in a row. Goran has all of those, doesn't no, he? Nobody in this era will break six in a row, which which is incredible. No. And uh, and he he did think he was safe with that record. I know I, I know he did. Um, but anyway, uh, he's still one of the all time greats, isn't he? Just a quick word on Joe Wilfred Songer. I wanted to mention he's in the as, as we come to you. We're halfway through the session, aren't we? There's two more semis to come. Songer, I think he fought back from match points down against Jean Ledard Struff last night. Just really impressive and and quite heartwarming to see Songer having having a bit of a go like this in the Renaissance. Yeah, there's this really nice. Um quotes he gave about dropping down to the challenger circuit which he's done i think three times this year most notably after the u.s open in a bid to find a bit of form and he said as much as finding form it actually really helped him find the reasons why he's playing tennis again because you realize down there that people are scrapping away they're fighting and you're playing on smaller courts and you feel a closer connection to the crowd and it really seems to have lifted him for this sort of last period of the season. And he's got a really good record in France indoors this year. It would kind of pass me by a little bit, but he won both Metz and Montpellier. He's got the most indoor wins on the ATP Tour this season. Um, which... And he and Djokovic are the only former champions in this draw. Mm. All right. So well, that's um... going to be interesting tonight. Yeah, and we've been, you know, considering 
I mean, there's there's no shortage of stories like this in tennis. But, you know, we talked a lot about Caroline Wozniacki's rheumatoid arthritis diagnosis. We talk a lot about Venus Williams, mm. Sjogren's syndrome, various other things. I'm not sure we've ever talked about Songa's sickle cell anemia diagnosis um, that he told us about earlier this year. I think it was before Indian Wells that we heard about it for the first time. That's a really serious debilitating condition. I know you you can go through periods where you're relatively unaffected by it, but when you have a a crisis, a flare-up, it causes excruciating pain. Um, And it's a condition that takes an awful lot of management. And, you know, given where he was in his career, in his personal life, it would have been very easy, very, very easy for him to to step away from the game. Mm. Um, And, um, yeah, he obviously felt like he wasn't done and uh it's pleasing to see that that yeah tenacity and that dedication to the sport kind of vindicated and he's, he's lovely isn't he he's, he's a great guy and lovely great fun to watch so uh good to have him back uh it's between monfils and berrettini now isn't it for, for the final place yeah pretty simple if monfils beats shapovalov tonight honk soon to be out of date tennis news honk <laughs> Um, then Monfils qualifies for London. And if he doesn't, then Berrettini uh, qualifies for London with what would be the lowest ever points total for a London qualifier. If Monfils wins today but loses tomorrow or Sunday, then it would still be the lowest points total. Monfils would need to, to win the tournament in Paris um, which I think is is one of those stats that reveals a lot it's about sort of an awful sex- lot of things about the year in tennis and where men's tennis is at. It's a really revealing statistic that. Yeah, it really suggests that those top top players have hogged the points and then there's just yeah. sort of been slim pickings for everyone else. Um, but yeah. it, I, do, I do think it's interesting that if Djokovic or Nadal doesn't win, if neither of them win Paris then the split on big three winners of Masters titles this year versus non-big three winners would be in favour of the non-big three. And that would be the first time that's happened for a little while. Uh, So it does suggest that this slight shift is happening away from the Grand Slams, but obviously they've won the last, what is it? I've lost count how many, 11? 4,000, Matt. 4,000, yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Um, And then Djokovic goes and slams... Uh, sits about six to yeah. six two. Um, sh- should also say uh, one bit of news reaching us today, and it's no great surprise to me, uh, is that Raymond Slaughter and Kiki Burton's are no longer working together. That was announced straight after pretty much Burton's final match there in the WTA finals. I, I got slight wind of this by the fact that uh, <laughs> I invited Raymond Slaughter onto the podcast this week, and he said, uh, "Not right now, David. I'd like to have some more clarity." <laughs> And any other time. He said, we're, we're on a break uh, at the moment, uh, so I need some clarity before I can uh, talk publicly. And, and, and he's promised to come on uh, in the future once he's had a bit of a break. But basically, she has said, um, you know, sometimes you have to make tough decisions. They've been together for four years. Everything I've achieved would not have been possible without him. Um, as a player and a person, he's helped me uh, grow. And he said, I'd like to thank her for her trust, hard work and dedication over the last four years and wishes um, Elise 
Uh, Tamayela, who's the new coach who was with um, Kiki Burton's in Shenzhen, wishes them the best of luck. And and whilst, I mean, look, on a personal note, I, I, I think an awful lot of Raymond Slaughter as, as a person, and I actually think he's an excellent coach as well. But it is also, on an, on the other side, and I don't know Elise Tamayela, but I, it's, isn't it great to see a, a woman given that job mm. and, and obviously thriving, and, and, and it's it's a good opportunity for her as well. Yeah, absolutely. Here, here. Mm. Right then, Catherine, go and present some tennis uh, on telly. Uh, Matt, go and edit this podcast and upload it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, we've been the tennis podcast for a six hundred and first time. Um, Can I just and, say, uh, Catherine? Yeah, I was watching the prime coverage earlier, and you you sprung on me out of nowhere. Highlights of Andy Murray winning in Antwerp, and I just went. I just I wasn't ready for it. It was. It, <laughs> It was the first time I'd actually seen it on a we big screen. That. We were filling. <laughs> I'd only ever could have watched it, watched the highlights really on my phone before, and suddenly it appeared oh. on this big screen, and it was all the more impactful and emotional all, all over again. Oh. Daniela had tears in her eyes as well. How lovely! How lovely! I was coaxed into the "What now" for Andy Murray chat. Oh, <laughs> yes. What, what was the, what was the result of that? Well, we all, we all agreed to. Enjoying, enjoy it for what it is and not talk about the future whilst also saying, yeah, you can challenge at the Australian Open. <laughs> so you, you, you just you just went back, back a little bit into tennis podcast land in the last few seconds of the chat where we, we absolutely uh, predict the future when we have no idea. Uh, okay, well, we've been the Tennis Podcast, brought to you in association with The Telegraph, executive produced by TennisBalls.com with our mascot Rio with a Y. Leave us a review on iTunes right now. Uh, go and uh, subscribe to our newsletter, which is going out very shortly, actually. So uh, get scrolling down your show notes on your phone and click and sign up to the newsletter and tell everybody you know about the podcast. We'll be back with two more of these over the weekend. Podcasts coming out of your ears. Speak to you soon. 